Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. There are many ways to clear or expand your mind to allow creativity to flow and stress to dissipate and peace to descend on the mind and body. There's exercise and meditation and prayer, but that takes exertion, practice, and devotion. What if there was a simpler way? Well, there is. Drugs. It's not the smartest way to solve your problems, but for centuries and centuries, drugs have worked for artists. We can go all the way back to cave paintings made in France and Spain, Italy, Southern Africa, and the Americas 50,000 years ago that some anthropologists claim were made after these ancient artists took drugs, probably some kind of hallucinogenic mushrooms or plant extract. Why would scientists think that? Well, because many of these paintings feature specific geometric shapes and images that scientists say are common visions resulting from the ingestion of certain types of chemicals. In other words, some of humankind's first artists were junkies, potheads, hopped up on goofballs. Art and genius and drugs have gone together ever since. Not always, but more than you may realize. Vincent van Gogh? He took digitalis for his epilepsy, which caused him to see everything with a slightly yellowish hue. Think about that the next time you look at one of his paintings. Picasso liked hash. Some say his cubist period was all about smoking hash. Would Frederick Nietzsche have become a famous philosopher without his opium? Thomas Edison enjoyed cocaine elixirs. How would World War II have turned out if Winston Churchill wasn't wired on amphetamines most of the time? Andy Warhol liked Obertrol an early form of Adderall, so he could stay awake all night. Both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were fans of LSD. So, you see what I mean? And we haven't even touched music. Rock stars often use drugs for both inspiration and escape, just like those cavemen 50,000 years ago. Which drugs, and which rock stars, and why? That's what we're going to investigate in a show that's part chemistry, part psychiatry, and part warning. Welcome to a primer on rock and roll drugs. This is the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Queens of the Stone Age with a song that got them kicked out of a prison when they played it. It's Feel Good Hit of the Summer. It's from their Rated R album. Prison officials didn't think that was a very appropriate song to play for a bunch of convicts. Hello there, I'm Alan Cross, and with that song, I think you can see where we're going. For the next hour, we're all about drugs, various controlled and not-so-controlled chemicals, both natural and manufactured, that many musicians ingest for uh, well, a variety of reasons. And before we begin, let's be clear, I am in no way endorsing, encouraging, or offering approval of any kind of mind-altering substance. At the same time, I want to avoid any moralizing, other than to throw in the occasional cautionary tale. Like I said, this is almost a chemistry and psychiatry lecture with some music mixed in. We'll start with the most common and most widely available psychotropic drug of them all, alcohol. Fermented beverages have been with us for eons. As long as there has been humans, we've been looking for ways to get wasted on alcohol. Now, to be fair... Alcohol is also used for ceremonies and rituals and medical and hygiene and gastronomic purposes. 
But for our purposes, we're interested in its use for artistic inspiration, recreation, and escape. All alcoholic beverages contain ethanol. This is a drug, specifically a depressant. It can relax or create euphoria. Too much, and you lose control and you become a danger to yourself and others. If you continue to ingest too much, you'll develop a dependency called alcoholism, which has serious physical, neurological, and social consequences. As a result, most societies and governments throughout history have tried to regulate the use of alcohol, as well as its production and sale and transportation and consumption through restricting its use, through monopolies, and through taxes. Unless you're a member of the branch of punk called Straight Edge, which eschews all drugs or alcohol, or a member of the more ascetic teetotaling branch of the Christian rock scene, alcohol is pretty much everywhere in rock and roll. Almost everybody drinks. Beer, wine, whiskey, bourbon, scotch, rum, tequila, Jägermeister, the list is, is endless. And all this is, is fine, generally, if it's done in moderation. But that's not always the case, of course. The permissive, high-pressure rock and roll environment can be very short on self-control. As a result, rates of alcoholism can be very, very high. The list of alcohol-abusing musicians who have had their lives ruined by booze is also endless. There are uncountable tales of alcohol abuse in the world of rock, but I want to look at just one. Take the case of Duff McKagan, ex of Guns N' Roses and later bass player with Velvet Revolver. During his days with the Gunners, he was an extremely um, enthusiastic drinker. He started drinking at 14 to alleviate his panic attacks. At his worst, he was going through a gallon of vodka a day. And when that seemed to be a bit excessive, he switched to wine, about 10 bottles a day. It was so bad that one day in 1994, his pancreas exploded. I mean, literally exploded. The diagnosis was alcohol-induced pancreatitis. This thing swelled up to the size of a football, distending his abdomen. And then, when it got too big, it blew. And that's even worse than it sounds, because the enzymes contained in your pancreas act like acid. So what happened here is that the goop in Duff's pancreas spilled out over his stomach and seeped through his intestines and eventually reached the muscles in his thighs. Now think about that for a second. An internal acid spill, burning up all your organs on the inside. When this happens to most people, they die. In Duff's case, though, he was able to get to a doctor in time who slit him open and let all the steam and acid escape. So that's right. Smoke came out of his stomach, out of his abdomen. He ended up with third-degree burns inside. Against all odds, he did survive, of course. And when he did, he realized that he'd been given a second chance. And Duff has been sober ever since. Velvet Revolver, featuring bass player Duff McKagan, who has been clean and sober ever since his pancreas exploded. Next on our list of rock and roll drugs is marijuana. And next to alcohol, pot has to be the most widely consumed drug in music. Marijuana comes from the cannabis plant. The active ingredient is THC, which stands for tetrahydrocannabinol. When THC is ingested through smoking or eating, there are certain psychoactive effects. And for certain conditions, there are also beneficial medicinal effects. Forms of cannabis have been consumed for thousands upon thousands of years for religious, medicinal, and recreational purposes. The ancient Hindus were big users of what they called janginka, 
the word that later evolved into ganja. It was a sacred hallucinogen for them. Throughout history, other peoples and shamans have used cannabis products. For example, Rastafarians use marijuana for spiritual reasons. And it's also interesting to note that it's almost impossible to die from a marijuana overdose. In fact, it might be actually impossible. There was only one recorded instance of someone dying from smoking too many joints, an English dude in 2004, but that's disputed. You can, however, die from cannabis poisoning, which is a different thing. I tried to find some stats on that, and the best I could do was five deaths in the UK in 2014. There is a big move, of course, to legalize pot in many places, and where it isn't legal, it's at least decriminalized. And you may have heard that there is actually a Bob Marley brand of ganja. It's called Marley Natural, and it's being grown, harvested, and sold with the blessing of the Marley estate. You uh, can Google it. I'll wait. Bob Marley, synonymous with Jamaica, reggae, and pot. The next drug I have on my list is cocaine. We know it as a crystal derived from the coca plant. It's both a stimulant and an appetite suppressant, which can result in a temporary state of euphoria and extreme alertness. It can also be very addictive, with very, very harmful effects both psychologically and physically. While it was used as an anesthetic and for other various medical purposes, in the 1860s an Italian doctor actually prescribed it for curing flatulence, and the early formula for Coca-Cola actually had a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of it, people have abused Coke for centuries. It eventually became illegal about 100 years ago. Its use in music circles has been cyclical. Usually when times are good and supplies are high and prices are low, Coke use by musicians increases. When the industry falls on bad times, Coke use goes down. One of the greatest consumers of cocaine in the 1990s was Oasis. In their earliest days, everybody in the band used to brag that they sprinkled the stuff on their cornflakes in the morning. But after a while, things took their toll, especially with Noel Gallagher. The more money Oasis made, the greater Noel's consumption. Eventually, though, things got way out of control. First, he became an even greater control freak. Second, his hearing started to go. He couldn't hear high frequencies as well, which prompted him to add layers and layers and layers of extra tracks on Oasis songs. And then came the paranoia. He'd sit around for hours talking about pyramid power, aliens, and the JFK assassination conspiracy. He would never go without his gack. When he was invited to a party at 10 Downing Street by the then-new Prime Minister Tony Blair, he actually slipped into the bathroom that's reserved for official visits by the Queen and did a couple of rails. Then, one day in 1998, he said, This has got to stop. He'd had one too many panic attacks, and he says he was bored of the Coke lifestyle. So he stopped, and he says he's never gone back. I want you to listen closely to this song from the third Oasis album, Be Here Now, from 1997. This was when Noel was at the height of being coked out pretty much all the time. In fact, everyone in the band was taking as much coke as they could find. As the result of the drugs, they thought everything they did was absolutely awesome and incredible. And because Oasis had just come off the huge success of What's the Story Morning Glory, there was nobody around to tell them to stop and sober up and do things properly. Noel kept saying, more guitars, louder guitars, bigger guitars, and turn up the high end. I can't hear anything. I don't think anyone ever counted the number of guitar tracks on this particular song. It's certainly over a hundred. 
But who was going to disagree with Noel back then? This was the first single. The first 90 seconds is nothing but feedback. There aren't any drums for about two minutes. The song runs eight minutes. This is a single. And it's the sound of a band on way too much coke. Oasis coked out of their minds with Do You Know What I Mean? That album, Be Here Now, is Noel Gallagher's least favorite Oasis record. He blames himself and the drugs. More rock and roll pharmacology coming up with heroin, E, and meth. All next. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Welcome back to a show on drugs, specifically their role, influence, and destruction in the world of alt-rock. And again, just to be clear, there is no endorsing or moralizing here. Uh, It's just the facts. We're merely going through a shopping list of drugs and the effect that they've had on certain people. There's not much more I can add to the story of rock and heroin. Next to pot, I don't think there's another drug that's been written about more than smack. And all the greatest drug abuse horror stories seem to revolve around heroin. There's Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love, Andrew Woods, Sid Vicious, Dave Gunn, Trent Reznor, David Bowie, Iggy Pop, Keith Richards, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, John Lennon, Pete Townsend, Eric Clapton. Uh, Well, you get the point. Heroin, obviously, is one of the most seductive drugs out there. It's an opiate, which means it comes from opium, a drug derived from poppy flowers. Heroin itself is a derivative of morphine. And if you want to get really chemical about it, heroin is a salt, diacetylmorphine hydrochloride. Heroin's history goes back to 1874, when a guy named C.R. Alder Wright was doing some experiments with morphine, which we've known about as far back as 3400 B.C. Anyway, he was doing these experiments at St. Mary's Medical School in London. By 1910, it was a well-known, respectable drug. For example, it was used in cough medicine for children. Adults could buy heroin-laced cough drops. Bayer, the German company who first marketed aspirin, actually invented and trademarked the brand name heroin because they believed it had heroic properties. It was sold as a cure for morphine addiction. They sold it in nice little bottles with fancy labels. And it was only because the Germans lost World War I that they lost the trademark to the word. By 1914, though, heroin was being banned in countries all over the world. It was obvious that using it for colds was, um, well, overkill. In fact, it really wasn't good for much except super extreme cases of pain. But by then, it was also being used recreationally. When it comes to music, there have been countless heroin tragedies, and not just in rock either. Heroin was big in certain jazz circles. Miles Davis, Charlie Bird Parker, and if you've ever seen the biopic Ray, you'll know that Ray Charles had his issues. But back to the alt-rock universe. The list of junkies and former junkies and dead junkies goes on forever. Heroin decimated and brought death to the New York Dolls, the Pretenders, Sublime, Smashing Pumpkins, Alice in Chains, Skinny Puppy, Hole, Scott Weiland, Didi Ramone, Billy Idol, A Chunk of Everclear, a vast swath of the Britpop scene of the 1990s, and pretty much everyone who's ever been in the Red Hot Chili Peppers past and present. This song, for example, is about Anthony Kiedis and his regular spot to score in Los Angeles. He has never said where this bridge is, but he does admit that it's a real place in downtown Los Angeles. But where is it? Naturally, there are some suggestions. 
The first is a small pedestrian tunnel that runs underneath Wilshire Boulevard and MacArthur Park, a place that was well known for drug deals and drug busts at the time Anthony's use was at its peak. Or it might be an underpass where the Santa Monica Freeway crosses above Hoover Street. That's close to downtown. Or it's the Second Street Tunnel under Grand Avenue. Or the First Street Bridge over Figueroa. Or maybe the Myra Bridge in Silver Lake. Or it may be the Belmont Tunnel, which is less than a kilometer away in the Westlake area. It used to be called The Hole because the area was dug out for what was supposed to be a subway station in the 1950s. Then it became an awful drug spot. Now it's all cleaned up. In fact, it's a dog park. And get this, when the Chili Peppers shot the video for Under the Bridge, where did they shoot it? Partly at the Belmont Tunnel. The Chili Peppers singing about scoring heroin under some bridge, a real bridge, in Los Angeles. Time to move on to the next drug in our pharmacopoeia. Methylene dioxymethamphetamine, MDMA for short, or if you prefer, ecstasy. Just like heroin, E used to be a legitimate pharmaceutical. Merck, another big German firm, stumbled upon it when they were looking for a drug that could stop abnormal bleeding. Bayer, and we've already talked about them already, already had such a drug, so Merck was looking for something that wouldn't violate their patents. MDNA didn't really work for this particular purpose, but they took out a patent anyway, just in case. After going back to the drug a couple of times, another chemist at Merck figured out that MDMA could have other effects on the nervous system, especially when it came to emotions. Details are a bit thin, but it's possible that MDMA was being used as a medical treatment in some parts of the U.S. in the late 1960s, after Dow Chemical came up with a way of synthesizing it. Some psychotherapists latched onto it, prescribing it to patients with anxiety issues. One particular psychotherapist named Leo Zeff traveled the world telling other people in the field about the therapeutic uses of MDMA. He called the drug Atom. From there, it spread and spread and spread in the medical community. Naturally, some of these prescriptions leaked out into the general public, and E began to be used recreationally. In 1981, a guy from Texas named Michael Clegg started selling MDMA under the name Ecstasy. 30,000 tablets a month were manufactured out of his lab. You could buy it over the phone by calling a toll-free number and using your credit card. Clegg's company paid taxes and everything. It was legit. It became so popular that some Coke dealers switched to selling E. The first country to try and control ecstasy was the UK. This was back in 1977. The US banned it after Nancy Reagan's Just Say No to Drugs campaign in 1985. Other countries and the United Nations soon followed. But by then, as you might guess, ecstasy was everywhere. It spread into dance and rave culture. And by the beginning of the 90s, E was one of the four most consumed drugs in the Western world outside of alcohol. You had pot, you had your coke, your heroin, and your E. The person most often credited with introducing ecstasy into the British scene is Bez, the dancer with the Happy Mondays. Legend says that he and his buddies had a regular spot under the staircase of the infamous Hacienda Club in Manchester where they did their dealing. That whole scene in Manchester became one of the biggest consumers of ecstasy anywhere in the world. Now, you just knew that the Happy Mondays had to come up somewhere on this program. Not only were they big users of ecstasy, but also cocaine and heroin and even crack. 
and their drug habits pretty much killed their record label, Factory Records, when label head Tony Wilson allowed the band to record an album in Barbados. They spent their entire budget on drugs instead of making a proper record. They also drove a Jeep through the front door of a bar, and Baez got into accidents that busted up his right arm so badly that he had to wear an external metal brace for weeks. And you can blame that on crack, the most addictive form of cocaine. Crack floods the body with dopamine, the body's natural feel-good hormone. The hit comes hard and fast, lasting no more than 10 minutes before the user crashes, becoming depressed and craving more. Each successive hit without higher doses leads to lower highs. It is an evil drug. So where did it come from? When guys like Pablo Escobar started importing huge quantities of cocaine into the U.S., there was an oversupply, and the price of coke fell by up to 80%. Dealers and chemists came up with a way to crystallize cocaine powder into rocks that could be smoked. These rocks could be sold in smaller quantities to more people, leading to a bigger profit. And by the end of the 80s, crack was everywhere. Next up is meth, the Walter White drug. Methamphetamine. Its full name is N-methyl-alpha-methylphenothalamine. And, believe it or not, it can actually be used as a proper medical drug. It can be prescribed in certain cases of narcolepsy and obesity and ADHD. It was also used as a stimulant for soldiers during World War II. In fact, the Nazis regularly distributed meth as a way of creating super soldiers who could stay awake and fight for days. And Hitler was probably a meth addict, too. When it's made in illegal meth labs and used recreationally, well, if you saw Breaking Bad, you know where that leads. Repeated meth use basically destroys almost every single part of the body and mind. It's easy to get addicted, super easy to become dependent, and very hard to kick. A number of musicians have admitted to having meth issues. Rufus Wainwright was left temporarily blind from a meth overdose. Whitney Houston, do we need to talk about her? Eddie Van Halen, Travis Meeks of Days of the New, Johnny Cash, Brian Welch of Korn, Britney Spears, and of course, Amy Winehouse. And this song, believe it or not, is actually about meth. It sounds like a fun alt-pop song. It was written at about the time when a bunch of San Francisco friends were constantly speeding. The uncensored version of the song features these lines. Doing crystal meth will lift you up until you break. It won't stop. I won't come down. I keep stock with the tick-tock rhythm. I bump for the drop. And then I bumped up. I took the hit that I was given. Then I bumped up again. Then bumped again. Listen for it. It's here. Stephen Jenkins is singing all about crystal meth. Third Eye Blind, with their big hit about crystal meth addiction. There's one more area of drug abuse in rock and roll that we need to touch on. We've danced around it a bit, but now let's get specific. The problem with prescription drugs is next. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This last segment on alt-rock and drugs is pretty wide-ranging. It deals with musicians who have abused prescription drugs. Maybe they convinced a doctor to prescribe them something. Maybe they bumped pills off friends, or maybe they bought them illegally. Like what? Well, there's Adderall and Ritalin for ADHD, Clonopin, a powerful anti-anxiety drug that can have all kinds of neurological effects, Fluoxetine, an antidepressant, Carbamapine, an anticonvulsant, Xanax and Ketamine, which are sedatives, Propofol, the anesthetic that ended up killing Michael Jackson, 
And then there are all the painkillers, ranging from codeine to Vicodin to hydrocodone to Oxycontin. Painkiller addiction is one of the most common of all prescription drug abuses. Oxycontin and Oxycondone are in the news a lot. These are related drugs, first introduced in 1995, and are very effective in short-term doses for people in acute pain. Like morphine and heroin, it's an opiate, which means you can get hooked. In fact, the nickname for Oxycontin is Hillbilly Heroin. There are many musicians who have battled Oxy problems, including Courtney Love. She even once overdosed in front of her daughter. Courtney Love, prescription drug survivor. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. And there is a basic rundown of the kinds of drugs you'll find throughout the world of new rock and alternative music. But this list is hardly complete. We didn't even touch on things like LSD and peyote, mescaline, PCP, and a vast array of hallucinogens and mood alterers. Obviously, as we've seen and you've probably heard, drugs are rife within the music industry and a major cause of destruction and death. The question is, can the industry, should the industry do something about this? You know, maybe police drug use amongst their artists? Do you enact some sort of mandatory drug testing policy for musicians? Some people actually say no. I believe in drug use, says one unnamed executive. Drugs are part of growing up and the creative process. It's not for me to interfere with what people are doing with their destiny. Others say, yes, it's the moral thing to do. And besides, we make all our money off these artists. If we keep them alive and healthy, they'll make us more money. Therefore, we have the obligation to stop what's going on. They've even set up a special 800 number for musicians in trouble. Several labels have full-time drug counselors on retainer, which sounds logical, but look at it this way. Will an artist's handlers blow off a multi-million dollar album project or tour just because one of the members needs to get clean? Will everybody put the health and the well-being of the artist before the money? At least one member of the U.S. Congress has asked for hearings on heroin in the music industry. Uh, but did anything ever come with that? Well, um, no, actually. More info all the time at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. That's my website. My email address is alan at alancross.ca. If you ever want to reach me about anything. Or we can look for each other on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. There are plenty of ways we can connect. So let's do that. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.